2006, January 17th, Lecture 10, Synthesis, the Hertz-Bungerthal Diagram, it's Astronomy 162, Winter Quarter 2006, 1000A, Evans Laboratory. We'll begin in just a moment. Okay, good morning everybody. Welcome back after the long weekend. A couple of things we got going on today, and we call your attention first of all to the PC screen over here on your left. Um, there is a study guide available for this class, and I just wanted to make certain you knew where that was. That's if you look under course news, there's quiz one study guide. Brings you to this page where all the study guides will be, and it brings up the study guide. The study guide is a list of the topics that will be on quiz number one, which will be Friday in class, normal time and place. Uh, you can grab a hold of a copy and print this out if you wish. Uh, the astute reader will immediately notice that there are more than 50 topics on here, although quiz one will be a 50-question test. This essentially is my outline. This is the roadmap that I use when I actually make up the test. I print out this, I make up this sheet, print it out, and then when I'm making the test, I go through and I kind of check off all the major, ca major um, categories. So these are, for those of you who may be paying really close attention, this is essentially the key ideas slides that have begun each lecture. So this is your roadmap for what's going to be on the quiz. Bear in mind that I never ask things like names and dates of people unless they're really, really super important and we haven't met any such per people yet, at least certainly not sort of in the Galileo Copernicus kind of way. I never ask dates. I rarely, if ever, ask um, like detailed numbers. Like I may give the speed of light to nine digits in class, but I would never expect you to regurgitate that one on a quiz. Similarly, while on the homeworks I will ask somewhat more difficult quantitative questions, that's because that is the appropriate forum for that. There will be quantitative questions, but of the sort of things that require you to square or cube or raise to the fourth power like two and three. So, you know, simple numbers. I won't ask you to do things that require a calculator. In fact, you will not need a calculator of any kind for this test. Yes, sir? Can we bring in, like, index cards on the formulas on it? No. This is an entirely closed book, closed notes, period, which means you're not going to be doing any computations which isn't required. And, you know, the last time, first time I taught, I, I allowed a 3x5 card, and a person brought me with little teeny tiny writing, and just amazing things just crushed into that 3x5 area. And I decided it's really not worth it because people spend so much time prepping the card, they don't actually study for the test. It didn't do them any damn good, so I figured that was just pointless. So, no, it's a closed book, closed notes test. What I'll be asking are basic principles and application of principles, not super detailed things for which re reference to notes will be required. Any other questions about the upcoming quiz? Bring a number two pencil. It'll work exactly like 161 quizzes, multiple choice, fill in the Scantron, etc. Now, I'm going to forgo the usual um, beginning uh, question this morning because today is a very big day in astronomy and science. Uh, a couple of things have happened both over the weekend and today. One of these is going to happen this afternoon if all goes well and the weather holds. The last planet in the solar system that has not been explored by a spacecraft is Pluto in the outer solar system. It was missed in the big grand tour of the Voyagers in the 1970s and 80s. That hopefully will be corrected this afternoon. Starting about 124 to 323 is the opening of the launch window for the New Horizons mission which if all goes successfully, will launch a spacecraft into orbit for a Jupiter flyby in a few years. The Jupiter gravity assist will then sling it out to the planet Pluto, and hopefully in the year 2015, so this is really planning in advance, some nine years now in the future, that should be a six there, excuse me. Um, 
Nine years, nine and a half years from now, this spacecraft will fly by the planet Pluto and its moon Charon and return the clearest pictures ever of that mysterious little frozen world. So those of you who may be looking for something interesting, check out the news. Maybe CNN usually carries uh, the launches live. NASA has a webpage, NASA Select, which will stream the video. Certainly in astronomy, we'll be setting up to watch that this afternoon as well. The other big news in space science was this weekend. The Stardust mission, which a couple of years ago made a close flyby to the comet Vilt 2, while during that flyby, while it took some spectacular pictures, it laid on this paddle, which contains a material called an aerogel, and to catch bits of comet dust and interplanetary and interstellar dust that would be associated with the comet. The aerogel is basically a slow catch material. They then folded that paddle up into this capsule, which is shown here. It landed safely and sound on the Utah desert on Sunday, was recovered by helicopter, and is now in a clean room at NASA Huntsville Center, where it is going to be opened up and analyzed, and hopefully will have caught bits and pieces of a comet. This is the very first interplanetary sample return mission. We've returned stuff from the moon. We've gotten occasional rocks that get knocked off Mars or, or asteroids, but we've never actually gone out and intentionally grabbed a sample of another celestial body other than the moon and returned it to Earth. So it's a tremendous achievement. Unlike the uh, Genesis probe, which uh, piled it in last year, this is a wonderful success. And finally today, of course, I cannot resist one of my heroes of science and astronomy. Benjamin Franklin is 300 years old today, or born 300 years ago today, January 17, 1706, on the corrected Gregorian calendar. He was actually born on the Julian calendar when the uh, British colonies, that which used to now known as the United States, with the rest of the British Empire, switched over from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar in the mid-1700s. Benjamin Franklin's birthday moved. He commented in Poor Richard's Almanac that those people who enjoy a good night's sleep were especially going to like the night of October 4th because on October 14th when they awoke they will have slept approximately 10 days on the calendar. Ben Franklin was the first American scientist in many cases really considered by many people the first American. Ben's great. Unlike those elitist guys who mostly founded this country, Ben actually had some brains. Okay. Let's begin. Today's topic is going to bring to completion the first unit of the class, which is the observed properties of the stars. And we've been asking a series of questions. You know, we began this class, I mentioned that there are three questions in astronomy that we try to answer. In fact, three questions of any science that we, that we study. The first main question is, what is it? Describe it. How does it, what does it look like? What are its properties? And from that, we can begin to go on to ask the harder questions. How does it work? What is the physics behind it? Why are stars the way they are, for example, to follow along this theme? And again, the third question, which we'd really like to know, is how do stars evolve? How do they form? How do they progress through the course of their existence? And how do they end their existence? So today we basically, in the last week, the last five lectures that we've seen, have answered this question over and over again to describe the stars. We have distances and motions. We have radii and masses, spectra. We've talked about the brightness in relation to temperature. We've talked about Wien's law and Stefan Boltzmann law and how we could bring in certain physical properties to learn something back about the stars. But we still have only a description, and today is going to now synthesize a lot of that information. Synthesis means a bringing together. We're going to bring together all those pieces and we're going to see if there are relationships among those observed properties, which relationships are going to give us the starting questions to begin to ask the bigger point of how do stars work 
and how do they evolve. Today we're going to introduce one of the most important concepts in stellar astronomy, the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. It is the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram that enables us to ask sensible physical questions about stellar structure and stellar evolution. So the key ideas today is we're going to introduce, first of all, something which we've seen bits and pieces of, but now we're going to culminate this and give you the luminosity-radius-temperature relationship for stars. It relates stellar radius and stellar temperature, the photosphere temperature, to its total power output, its luminosity. And this is one of those few times that a formula appears in a key ideas slide because it's so critically important to us in this class. We're then going to introduce the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which is a plot of the luminosity of a star as a function of its temperature, its photosphere temperature. And this diagram is going to turn out to be the key roadmap to understanding the physics and evolution of stars. The main features of this diagram are certain regions, certain loci, where stars tend to pile up in their luminosity and temperature properties. They have names. We're going to meet, for example, the main sequence, the giant and supergiant branches of the main sequence, and the group of stars called white dwarfs. We're also going to reinvestigate this idea of luminosity class, which was first introduced last Friday as a way of testing lumino telling the luminosity of a star by features in its spectrum. And we're going to see how luminosity classes now write themselves very clearly upon the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. It's a very, very important diagram and why we're going to spend a whole lecture on it. We're going to be using Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams as tools in the sections that follow on stellar structure and evolution. Now, we've been asking the question, what are stars describing? What are the basic observable properties of stars? We're now going to sort of put all that together. If I wanted to summarize the ideas of the properties of the stars themselves, this is independent of their distances and their motions, which are simply accidents of the physical configuration of the Milky Way. And I actually talk about the properties of the stars themselves. We can summarize them as follows. Stars have a very, very large range of luminosities. Luminosity, remember, is the intrinsic power of the star, how much energy it's actually putting out, like 100 watts in a light bulb. In this case, so far as we know, the faintest stars have a brightness of about one ten thousandth the luminosity of the sun. The luminosity of the sun is going to be our, our unit that we're going to use instead of watts, which is kind of inconvenient. So the rate is from 10 to the minus 4 solar luminosities, or 10,000 times fainter than the sun. The very brightest stars that we've observed thus far are 10 to the 6 or a million times more luminous than the sun. So the range of stellar luminosities is approximately 10 powers of 10. It ranges over approximately 10 billion in luminosity from one ten thousandth of the sun to a million times brighter than the sun. The range of stellar radii is actually also medium size. It ranges from objects that get as small as 10 to the minus 2, the radius of the sun, which is approximately the radius of the Earth, up to about 1,000 times the radius of the sun. 1,000 times the radius of the sun would be large enough to reach out to almost the orbit of just or almost to or just beyond the orbit of Jupiter. So we have objects that range in size from the size of the Earth, 10 to the minus 2 our sun, out to approximately the orbit of Jupiter. Five astronomical units are about 1,000 solar radii. Range of stellar temperatures, on the other hand, is pretty modest. In the, la in the last few, we've actually almost had to switch over into a logarithm because we have 10 powers of 10 for luminosity and approximately 5, maybe 5.5 five powers of 10 for the radii, but the temperatures are barely over a factor of 10. The coolest things that we recognize as stars are around 3,000 degrees Kelvin, maybe getting down to a couple thousand, but you know, 3,000 is pretty typical for the faintest M stars, up to about 50,000 degrees Kelvin, occasionally as high as 100,000 for oddballs. 
So we have a fairly modest range of surface temperature. However, remember that luminosity is proportional to temperature to the fourth power. So even though I have only about a factor of 10 in temperature, I've got approximately 10 to the fourth in luminosity just from that temperature alone. So clearly, we're going to get a lot of leverage on the large stellar luminosity range. And finally, we have a relatively wide range of stellar masses. The smallest things that we recognize is a star about a tenth of the mass of the sun sometimes down to, say, 7% or 8% the mass of the sun for the smallest things that are true bona fide stars. What we mean by bona fide star will become more clear in the following weeks. And the maximum mass of sun stars is approximately 50 times the mass of the sun. There are claims of stars getting up as high as 60, 80, even 120 times the mass of the sun, but they're phenomenally rare. The range from about a tenth to 50, only a range of about 500 in solar mass, is about the range we're dealing with. So stars have a fairly restricted but wide range of mass, a very wide range of radii, a very large range of luminosities, and a somewhat restricted range of temperatures. So these are all disconnected facts at this point. And the question we want to ask is, is whether there are any relationships among these properties that clue us in as to how the luminosity or temperature of a star might be related to its mass or its physical size or some other property. So the goal today is to try to find correlations among the observed properties. We haven't really asked any hard physical questions yet, but this is going to inform us as to how to ask those questions. Now to do this, I need a little bit of physics in the sense I need to know how I expect luminosity, temperature, and radius to relate. I don't simply know nothing about it. It turns out that we do have a certain expectation based on the Stefan-Boltzmann law. Okay. We call this the luminosity-radius-temperature relationship. So three of those quantities, the luminosity, total power output, radius, physical size, and surface temperature, T, are all related together. The expectation is as follows. Stars are hot, dense balls of gas. And we know from Kirchhoff's first law that a hot, dense ball of gas will emit a continuous blackbody spectrum of radiation, a continuous, unbroken spectrum of color from the ultraviolet out through the infrared. Now, we know that that spectrum is broken up by absorption lines, but that's simply due to the outer atmosphere of the star that rides above that underlying photosphere. If the photosphere behaves as a black body, then it should obey the Stefan-Boltzmann law, which tells us that the amount of energy per second pouring out of each square centimeter of area on the surface of that star will be equal to sigma, the Stefan-Boltzmann constant, times the temperature of that body to the fourth power. We've already seen this. If I double the temperature of a star, the amount of luminosity per square centimeter goes up like 10, 2 to the fourth power or 16 times. So this tells us how much energy per unit area on the surface of the star the star emits. But that's not luminosity. Luminosity is energy per second. So in order to convert energy per area to total energy per second coming out, I have to multiply by the surface area of the star. The surface area of the star will be stellar radius squared times 4 pi. That's simply the radius, the surface area of a sphere of radius r. So I define the radius of a star to essentially be the radius of the photosphere. Now I've got a definition for what do I mean by the radius of a fuzzball of gas? Well, the answer is there is a certain layer when I look into that fuzzball of gas where the sun becomes opaque. That 
layer at which the sun becomes opaque is the, the temperature of that surface defines the temperature of the photosphere, and its surface area defines how much energy pours out into the transparent portions of the star and into empty space. So I have energy per second per, per area, sigma t to the fourth. I have surface area, 4 pi radius squared. Obviously, to get the luminosity, which is energy per second, I multiply these two. And I get that the stellar luminosity in energy per second, L, should be 4 pi r squared, the surface area of the star, times the energy per area per second, sigma t to the fourth. So I have a fairly simple looking equation, which really depends upon, which relates three physical quantities. The total power output of the star, its luminosity, the radius of its photosphere squared, and the temperature of its photosphere, photosphere to the fourth power. Sigma and 4 pi are simply numbers that get the scalings right and get the units right. So if I put in, for example, temperature in kelvins and radius in meters, I would pick a value of sigma that would give me luminosity in watts, for example. I can simplify this equation further if I express this as solar radii and the temperature of the solar photosphere, and I would get luminosity of the, in units of the solar luminosity. So don't worry about the 4 pi and the sigma, but care a great deal about the r squared and the t to the fourth. This gives us an expectation as to how a star's luminosity relates to two other physical properties we can observe. Its radius, which we can measure through various means like interferometry, lunar occultations, or even direct observation if I'm lucky, and the temperature, which I can derive primarily by observations of the spectra of the star, which by backing out the conditions of ionization and excitation, I can compute the stellar temperature. For the sun, that's approximately 5,600 Kelvin. Now, let's look at some ways in which the luminosity radius temperature relationship actually gives us some insight as to how things should relate among stars. The first example is I'll take and compare two stars, which have both the same radii, but star A is two times hotter than star B. Well, I can write down the ratio of luminosities from these two using the luminosity radius temperature relationship. Luminosity of star A is simply 4 pi times the radius of A squared times sigma temperature of A to the fourth power. And the luminosity of B is the corresponding formula for the radius of B and the temperature of B. Well, first of all, the radius is the same. 4 pi is the same and sigma are the same, so they just cancel out. So the ratio of the luminosities is simply the ratio of their temperatures to the fourth power. Well, the first star is twice as hot as the second star. So I simply do the math, and the luminosity of star A is 16 times the luminosity of star B. In other words, if I take two stars of the same radius, but one is hotter than the other, the ratio of their total power output, their total luminosity, will simply scale as the ratio of their temperature to the fourth power. You'll notice how by doing it, by expressing it in terms of relative brightness, relative luminosity in this case, I've collapsed the units. I've collapsed the 4 pi and the sigma. I don't care what they are. I never need to know them. I never need to punch them into a calculator. And measuring the relative luminosity of two stars of same size but different temperature is simply the ratio of their temperatures to the fourth power. This is an example of a simple scaling relationship. And we use scaling relationships in astronomy like this all the time. Because I don't have to care. I've never had to tell you whether T was in kelvins or whatever. I don't have to tell you whether luminosity is in watts or solar units. I've collapsed those units by always talking about relative brightness. 
Clearly, if I express things in terms of solar luminosities, I can get that back into real units. Here's a second example. We'll take two stars. They're going to have the same temperature, A and B, or have the same TA. But star A is two times bigger than star B. Radius of A is two times radius of B. Again, start with the radius luminosity temperature relationship. The things that are constant go away. The four pi's are constant, and the sigma t to the fourth is a constant because the temperature is the same. Now, if I have two stars of the same temperature, the ratio of their luminosities is simply the ratio of their radii squared. Well, I punch through the numbers, and I get since the ratio of the radii is two, the ratio of the luminosities will be two squared, or four. So I take two stars, same temperature, but one is simply physically larger in radius than the other. And I expect it will be two squared, or four times more luminous. So there it's possible to have two stars of the same temperature, but very dramatically different luminosity because of difference in size. Or as the previous example showed, two stars of the same size but different temperature have very different luminosities. Because temperature determines how much energy is coming out per unit area, size tells you how much radiating area you have. And so both of those work together. I can't separate luminosity and radius in any sensible way. I have to carry them together. And that's going to be important to us to understanding how properties among stars relate to each other. Now, are there any other? So I expect there to be a correlation in here between luminosity and temperature. I expect as the temperature of the star rises, the luminosity of the star will go up. But there's a second effect in that I also expect a dependence on the size of the star. And do they know something about each other, or can I have any combination of stellar size and stellar temperature, and therefore basically any combination together giving me any stellar luminosity? That's the question. Well, the way we go about asking that question is to back up a little bit and do an empirical crack at how the brightness of a star, its luminosity, relates to its measured stellar temperature. The reason why we can do this is I can measure the, the temperature from spectral type. I can look at the spectrum and get an idea of, is it a hot star like an O star, a cool star like a G star, or a very cool star like an M or an L star. I can measure the luminosity if I have the apparent brightness, just photometry, and I measure its distance through its parallax. I can't do this for a lot of stars, but I can do it for a few thousands of stars nowadays. In the old days, you could do it for maybe handfuls of stars. There were various tricks you could use to estimate distances. But in the end, luminosity could be a derived observable. Temperature is a definite distance-independent observable. Well, it turns out that a plot of the luminosity, how does the luminosity depend upon the observed temperature of the star, was first done in 1912 by two independently by two different astronomers. The first of these was a man named Elnor Hertzsprung, who was a Danish astronomer who was working pretty much by himself in Denmark, who made this plot for a set of stellar data for star clusters, and Henry Norris Russell, who did the same plot, but using then the best measurements he had for the distances of nearby stars, not just those associated with clusters. Hertzsprung used clusters because it was assumed that they were all in the same place of space, and therefore here was a sample of stars which were all at the same distance. So their relative apparent brightness reflected their relative luminosities because the distance was the same. Even if he really wasn't sure what the distance was, it didn't matter because they were all at the same distance. Russell's approach was to use the distance and the apparent brightness to derive the luminosity, so he had to know the individual distances. 
As a consequence of the fact that they both did this independently, we refer to this now as a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Hertzsprung gets the first credit because he was really the first person to publish it. In America, for many years, this was known entirely as the Russell diagram. In Europe, it was known as the Hertzsprung diagram. Here are pictures of these two gentlemen, Einar Hertzsprung on the, on the left and Henry Norris Russell of Harvard on the right. This is the original Russell 1912 diagram, the reason being I, I can't find a copy of Hertzsprung's. It plots luminosity here. It's measured actually in magnitude units um, on the left axis and the vertical axis. And across the top, he has plotted the spectral type of the star B, A, F, G, K, and M. Now, you can see there's a couple of oddities here. There's N, which is, a dis which is a defunct class of stars, and there are no O stars. The reason for that is O stars turn out to be fairly rare, and they're so far away that none of them had good distances. None of them had parallaxes or any other kind of way to estimate distances. So the original Russell diagram just went pretty much from B through M. And the first thing you notice is that stars don't have any combination of luminosity and temperature they want. Temperature goes from hot B to cool M. So temperature is backwards here because it was originally plotted as spectral type. There's a broad band where it seems that hot stars tend to be very luminous and cool stars tend to be faint. Again, it's kind of in keeping with our basic intuition, hot things produce more energy per unit area. But there's a sample of cool stars that are as luminous as very, hot, very, very hot stars these objects sitting up here. In fact, there's some stars up here that are extremely luminous. They're, in fact, more luminous than any of the stars in this broad band, and yet they're among the coolest stars. This is an M-type. This N-type can just be seen as a very, very cool M-star in the modern way of doing things. So these things are cool, very cool. These are about 30,000 to 3,000 degrees, so there's a factor of 10 in temperature here, which should be 10 to the fourth or 10,000 times difference in luminosity per area, and yet these guys are radiating as much total power as these hotter stars, even though if they were exactly the same radius, they would be 10,000 times fainter in luminosity. So what's going on here? Now that's the 1912 version. We can do a lot better with modern parallaxes. This is the same diagram. It's plotted here in terms of a logarithmic luminosity called an absolute magnitude, but that's not really important to us. It goes from faint to bright, so this axis gives you luminosity. This axis here is the difference between two filter colors in magnitudes. This color is a stand-in for temperature in the sense that blue objects are on this side, red objects are here, and you remember from the Wien law, hot objects are blue, cool objects are red, and I can simply relate across here color to temperature. It's not an exact one-to-one -one correspondence in the sense that I can exactly read off, oh yeah, 0.5 here is less than so many thousands of Kelvin. So this is an observed diagram, but you can sort of map OBAFGKM. These are M stars down here, a handful of B stars up here. Again, O stars are so far away, we don't even have parallaxes that for them to good precision even with Hipparchos. They'd be up here in the diagram at very, very hot stars. There's a broad wash of stars. Most of the stars in the nearby solar neighborhood lie on this broad diagonal band of hot, luminous stars and faint, cool stars. But there's a significant subset of stars up here, which are very, very luminous for their low temperature. And there's even this little oddball down here. It's very, very hot, but it's very, very faint, which means it has to have a very small surface area. So what's going on here? Well, the first thing we notice is stars don't have any luminosity and temperature. 
they have very specific ranges of luminosity and temperature that know about each other, that correlate. And in fact, we can actually begin to break this Hertzsprung-Russell diagram into zones and try to understand what's going on. Now, I'm going to jump ahead from these observed plots to a cartoon plot. This is the one that's on your web page. And we're now going to label these loci. Loci are simply regions where stars tend to cluster. And I've just simply drawn this as a cartoon. This diagonal band that runs from hot, high luminosity stars. So now I've plotted the axes here as luminosity in units of the luminosity of the sun and temperature in degrees Kelvin. It ranges from about 2,500 Kelvin at the cool end to 40,000. Now notice this is backwards. Hot on the left, cool on the right, rather than plotted the other way around. The reason for that is a historical accident. It's originally in the order OBAFGKM, the traditional spectral sequence. And then, of course, later, the L stars and the T stars are down here below 2,500 Kelvin. Luminosity increasing from the bottom 10 to the minus 4, sort of the faintest stars that we have, to 10 to the 6 times the luminosity of the sun. Be able to draw this diagram for yourself at a whim. This is one of the few diagrams in this class I really want you to be able to draw and sketch because it's so critically important to us. This is basically the screwdriver in the astronomy's toolkit. It's one of the most important tools we have. Now, there's a certain regions in this diagram that get special names. This broad diagonal band from hot, high luminosity stars to cool, low, cool, low luminosity stars where most of the stars lie is called the main sequence because it's the main place where stars reside and there's clearly a luminosity temperature sequence here. They're laid out at hot, high luminosity, cool, low luminosity. These stars over here in this kind of middle right-hand side of the diagram that are cool but very much more luminous than stars like the sun are called giants. That name is very suggestive of what's going on. If you have the same temperature as a star down here, but you have more luminosity, the luminosity radius temperature relationship tells you that you're producing the same amount of energy per area. So to have total higher luminosity, you have to have a larger surface area. You've got to be physically larger in terms of radius. And so if these stars down here are normal main sequence stars, these stars must be giants. They must be bigger than main sequence stars at the same temperature. So we call them giant stars. Across the top, we get stars that are extremely luminous for stars at the same temperature, either on the main sequence or even among the giants. Since we kind of have to resort to superlatives, we call those supergiants. It's a class of stars that resides along the top of the main sequence with the highest luminosity and biggest stars residing in the upper right-hand corner. Finally, there are a group of stars down here in the lower left which are underluminous for their temperature. So we compare them to main sequence stars like a 10,000 degree star here, like the star Sirius, and I get a luminosity of about 100 times the luminosity, 10, 100 times the luminosity of the sun. But here's a star down here that's also 10,000 degrees, but it's one one hundredth the luminosity of the sun. 100 to 100 is 10,000 times fainter but they're the same temperature, which means they're, ra they're radiating the same number of energy per second for every square centimeter of their surface. So to be down here, they must be physically smaller than main sequence stars. They're referred to as dwarf stars. 
However, because they're very, very hot on average, their colors appear white compared to the stars they reside next to if they're in binaries, so they got called white dwarfs. These are hot, very tiny dwarf stars. So these are the four main loci of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Most stars lie along this diagonal band called the main sequence. There's a clump of stars here called the giants. A sequence across the top of the diagram, the most luminous stars to some of the coolest high luminosity stars called the supergiants, and then a smattering of stars in kind of a parallel low luminosity sequence down here called the white dwarfs. These names are suggestive of why they reside in those parts of the diagram. So these are the different pieces. Let's actually now walk through each of these regions in the, in the HR diagram and describe their properties. I haven't said anything physically about what makes it that a star is in a particular region. I can't do that yet. But what I can do is ask what the properties of these stars are in each of these regions. Let's start with the main sequence. Okay. The main sequence, if I look at nearby stars, and now the plot I'm going to be showing on the right-hand side of this diagram for each of these slides is the Hipparchos modern Hertzsprung-Russell diagram for the solar neighborhood. This is going to be all stars with a parallax that give a 10% distance, so I get a very, very good, basically 20% luminosity. Actually, in many cases, the luminosities are better than a couple percent for these. This is the most accurate Hertzsprung-Russell diagram ever made for all the stars in kind of a bubble, about 100 parsecs around the sun, 100 to 200 parsecs around the sun. 85% of nearby stars reside on the main sequence, this diagonal, somewhat wiggly band that runs across here. Now notice that what we expected was that luminosity should depend on temperature to the fourth power times radius squared. If we made the naive assumption that all stars were the same radii and they simply differed in temperature, then I would expect a diagonal band like this in that high luminosity stars would be very, very hot and low luminosity stars would be very, very cool, or vice versa. But this line is, in fact, steeper, so there is a slight change in radius as I go along this line. But they're not all that different in size. This is my naive expectation, but clearly there are wiggles and lumps around here. So there's some detail in here that, that begs to be described. The range of properties that I find in the main sequence is the broadest range of luminosity across the entire diagram. There's nearly a power of 10 to the 8 in luminosity from the faintest main sequence stars down here at a hundredth or less the luminosity of the sun, up to the brightest main sequence stars, the sequence actually curves up a bit here, at approximately 10 to the six times the luminosity of the sun. The range of temperature spans the entire range of temperature from O and B stars at 50,000 degrees Kelvin to M stars down at 3,000 degrees Kelvin. And in recent years, we've extended this down now to about 2,500 and 2,000 Kelvin with the discovery of the L stars. However, the range of stellar radii is pretty small. They range from a tenth the radius of the sun at the low temperature end and approximately 10 solar radii at the very high end. It's only a factor of 1,000 in, solar ra in, in, in uh, radii, but more than a factor of 10 to the 8 in luminosity. So clearly we have changes not only in radius, but of temperature and in luminosity. And they all work in the direction that Stars down here at the low cool, luminosity cool end of the main sequence are small dwarf and cool stars. We often refer to them as red dwarfs. Stars like the sun reside here in the middle. The sun is a main sequence dwarf star. It's kind of a middling temperature dwarf star, about 5,000 Kelvin. 
And then we have hot dwarfs, because they're really only ten times the radius of the sun. That isn't that big in the grand scheme of things. So the O and B stars are up here. They're slightly bigger and hotter than the sun. These are slightly smaller and cooler than the sun. And that, combined with the radius-luminosity-temperature relationship, gives me this broad diagonal band across the main sequence here. Now, why is it that some main sequence stars are more luminous and bigger and some are smaller is a question we have to answer in, in the following lectures later this week. The sun is a main sequence star. In fact, the sun resides approximately right here in this diagram. There are so many stars piled up, the sun is basically obscured in this particular picture. So the sun is a main sequence star. What is it that makes stars main sequence stars? That's a question we have to answer, and we're actually going to spend a number of lectures asking, answering that question. Now, there is also a locus of stars that are brighter than main sequence stars of the same temperature. The first of these makes a kind of a, if you think of this as the trunk of a tree, the main sequence, this is kind of a branch off that tree. We refer to these as the giants. Because they have the same temperature as main sequence stars down here, but higher luminosity, since the temperature is the same, that temperature of the fourth difference cancels out, and the differences must be radii. And since the luminosity goes like the radius squared, I know right away that to have a higher luminosity at the same temperature as the star down here, I must be physically a lot larger. I must have a larger radius, like the radius ratio squared. In fact, if I look at the properties of giant stars here, they have radii between 10 and 100 solar radii. And luminosities in a fairly restricted range between about 1,000 and 100,000 solar luminosities. So these giant stars live in this kind of off-to-the-right branch from the main sequence. And there's a lot of them. Notice there's a big clump, a pileup of giants here. There are a few unusually cool and very, very big giants over here, but most of them tend to reside over in this range. They tend to be K stars and M stars in temperature. Okay, so giants tend to be K and M stars, whereas main sequence stars are OBAFGKML, the whole sequence. But giants are pretty special. There are G giants, a few, but not too many, but most of them are K and M giants. Now, across the top, and these are relatively rare stars, so in that solar volume, studied by Hipparchos, there's only a smattering of them, but they're super luminous compared to stars of the same temperature, even compared to giants. These all have radii in excess of a thousand times the radius of the sun. These things get up to the size that they would fill the orbit of Jupiter in our own solar system, absolutely swallowing all of the inner planets. And the luminosities are huge. They range between 100,000 to a million times the luminosity of the sun. Because they're bigger than giants, we call them supergiants. And luckily, we stop the nomenclature, so we don't have to worry about hypergiants and stuff like that. So giant stars are bigger than main sequence stars. Therefore, they are more luminous at the same temperature. Supergiants are even bigger than giants of the same temperature, and therefore among the most luminous stars in the universe. So the giants and supergiants form a separate locus. They're relatively rare. On this diagram, they're approximately 15% of all stars. Most of that 15% is in the giants, and you can almost literally count that there's a tiny fraction of stars that are supergiants in the local volume. There are more than 15,000 stars on this diagram, to give you some reference. So supergiants are pretty rare. Finally, the white dwarfs. There's a handful of white dwarfs in the nearby volume. They live in the lower part of the diagram here. They're very, very hot. 
They're up a sort of O, B, and A type star temperatures down here. These sort of B to A spectral types. But they're extremely underluminous. For the same temperature, they have very small luminosity compared to stars that are 100,000 to a million times the luminosity of the sun. So in order for them to have such low luminosity at the same hot temperature, they must be very tiny. They must have a small surface area. They're pumping out all kinds of energy per square centimeter. They just don't have a lot of square centimeters when it's all added up on their surfaces. If you do the math, you find that the luminosity radius temperature relationship predicts these stars are 1 100th the radius of the sun. That's the size of the Earth. So we have stars that are 50, 100,000, in a couple cases, 6,000 degrees Kelvin, and yet they're only the size of the Earth. What the heck are those? Well, we call them white dwarfs. They're extremely unusual objects. They fall in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram because there's a handful of them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's 12 of these things in the local volume that were bright enough to be observed with Hipparchos. There turn out to be a lot more of them, but they're too faint. This cutoff here on the bottom of this diagram is not because there are no stars. It's because those stars were too faint for the tiny telescopes on board Hipparchos to be able to observe them. You have to be able to see something to measure its parallax. If you can't see it, you ain't going to measure its parallax. It's not going to end up on the diagram. The loss of stars at the top of the diagram is also a selection effect. That's because those stars are extremely rare. We only tend to, therefore, if they're rare, I have to go into a much bigger volume to find them. To give you an example, let's say that I wanted to learn about the properties of men who are seven foot five. All right, I'm looking around this room. I don't see any seven footers. What if I drew a circle around this campus? I might find, actually, are there any seven footers in this campus? I have no idea. I don't see that many tall guys in the basketball team. They're tall, taller than me, but not seven footers. But I want seven five. I want really tall. So I'm going to have to draw a bigger and bigger circle and count up people before I find one of those rare people. My survey volume gets bigger. As my survey volume gets bigger, that means how far out I have to go before I encounter that mythical 7.5 foot person is going to be really big. They're, going to be, they're probably going to live a long ways away unless I'm just lucky. So the same is true of stars. As I survey out to larger and larger volumes, I encompass more and more stars as the cube of the distance because I'm going out in volume. So if a star is extremely rare, I'm going to have to go a long ways away from the sun before I'm likely, just by the pure number of probabilities, to find one. Sometimes you get lucky. There's really luminous stars nearby, but only one or two, sometimes not. So on average, while there are supergiants out there, they are on average so far away that they're too far away for Hipparchos to get a good parallax, and that's why they're missing from this diagram. So both of those... The bottom of the diagram and the top of the diagram are examples of selection effects we've always got to keep in the back of our head whenever we're looking at observed diagrams. Now, we've heard these names, white dwarf, dwarf or main sequence, dwarf star, giant star, supergiant before. Those are the names attached to the so-called luminosity classes applied to the spectra of stars. Let me remind you what a luminosity class is like. This is from last Friday. The absorption lines in the atmospheres of stars are sensitive to pressure. If the pressure goes up, that means, for example, for hydrogen. So let's say we're talking about an A star where the hydrogen lines are really strong, and this effect turns out to be very dramatic. Normally, we said, well, if you look inside microscopically at a hydrogen atom, it's got certain discrete orbitals. There's a ground state, first excited state, second excited state, and so forth. 
And the spacing of those levels tells you what the space in between atoms is. However, hydrogen atoms don't live in, in isolation. There may be other hydrogen atoms around. If you pack a lot of hydrogen atoms together, they will start to feel each other's electromagnetic fields, and that will slightly alter and fuzz out the energy levels a bit, because the electron will get tugged a little bit by a nearby hydrogen atom, or pushed a little bit by a collision, or something like that. The consequence is, as you run the pressure up in an atmosphere, you pack more and more hydrogen atoms together, and you bash them off them more often. And what that happens is, as the pressure rises, you fuzz out the energy levels. And so the lines become broad. As you let the pressure off, as the density drops, as you have a lighter and lighter packing of hydrogen atoms, those atoms are less and less affected by their neighbors, and the lines grow narrower and narrower and narrower until they approach their natural all-hydrogen atom all-by-itself-in-space width, which can be very, very narrow indeed, and is set by the fuzziness of quantum mechanics. So we expect there to be a correlation between how pressure, how much pressure there is in the atmosphere and the broadness or width of the lines, how fuzzy those lines appear. In the sense that high pressure atmospheres, high density atmospheres have broad lines. Low pressure, low density atmospheres have very, very narrow lines. Larger stars, giants and supergiants of the same mass, tend to be big and puffy. You're taking the same amount of matter, but you're spreading it over a bigger volume because they're physically larger in extent. That lowers the mean distance between hydrogen atoms. They can less affect their neighbors, and the lines, as a consequence, get narrower and narrower. So the implications for this are physically larger stars, not larger in mass, but larger in radius, have low-density, low-pressure atmospheres, and therefore very, very narrow absorption lines for those absorption lines that are very sensitive to pressure, like the hydrogen lines. But as I go to smaller and smaller stars, as I pack that same mass into a smaller volume, I push those hydrogen atoms together, they begin to bounce off each other, and I get a very strong effect in that I broaden the lines out. And this is a way to guess the luminosity of a star by looking at the breadth of the lines. We did this by assigning a numerical class. Class 1a and 1b we called supergiants, 2 we called gi bright giants, 3 we called giants, Roman numeral 4 is subgiants, and 5 are dwarfs. And now we're going to see what I meant by dwarfs were main sequence stars. So now this is a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, although I've got a slightly more colorful version of it. The supergiants are across the top of the diagram. The type b supergiants form the bottom of that sequence. Type 2 are bright giants. They're not in the main giant clump, giant branch here. They're just above it. The main giant branch is type 3, luminosity class 3. Luminosity class 4 are subgiants, kind of this little branch here and a little bit of fuzz above this main wiggly locus, which is the main sequence. So the sun is a dwarf star. White dwarfs are so special, they don't have a separate luminosity <coughs> class. They didn't fall in the luminosity class. They have super broad hydrogen lines. So now we can place stars on this diagram. The sun is a main sequence G2 dwarf star. It sits right here, just above the main sequence, just above the central line. Betelgeuse, the bright red star in the winter sky, is a red supergiant. Rigel, the other star in the constellation of Orion, is a blue supergiant. It's up here in the supergiant branch. Sirius, the bright star in the dog star, is a A main sequence star. It's a hot main sequence star, so it's down here on the main sequence. It's type 5. And Aldebaran is a K giant. It's up here in the giant branch. So by telling the spectral type, I can tell where it should land in this Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. But what about their sizes, as implied by their names? 
Here's a little montage of all those stars now drawn to scale from the sun to Sirius. Sirius is two and a half times the radius of the sun. Aldebaran is about 25 times the radius of the sun. Rigel is 54 times the radius of the sun. And Betelgeuse is 800 times the radius of the sun. If Betelgeuse were in our system, it would fill out past the orbit of Mars on its way to the orbit of Jupiter. So the questions we have is open. Why don't stars have any luminosity and temperature? Why are there loci on the main sequence? Why is there a main sequence at all? What makes one main sequence star different from another? Why are some hot and some cold? Why are the supergiants and giants what they are? Were they born that way or is something else going on? We're going to answer those questions over the next two weeks. The HR diagram is our roadmap. I'll see you all tomorrow. Right.